0: Okay, and I'm gonna do my new low voiced intro so that
1: <laughs> your lower you have a lower voiced Eric intro Eric said
0: that my voice is too high on the intro. He pitches up when he does the intros. I pitches up. I speak in millennial up talk so that people <laughs> can feel comfortable immediately and then I then I hit him with my podcast voice. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to Deadcat. Tom here. we got the full house, Eric and Katie. And a very exciting episode for you guys. It's a two-parter. We haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, but first off, uh, Eric is going to fill us all in on his time at Collision, the U.S. branch of the Web Summit Conference, and his takes on uh, the state of venture capital investing and, I don't know, whatever fun panels that he contributed to. And then we've got an interview that Eric and I did a couple of days earlier with Lauren Etter, a Bloomberg journalist who wrote a book about Jewel, uh, which is a tech company. We decided through the course of that interview, or it is a tech story. You were, you were skeptical. I'm like, if Theranos becomes a tech story, I mean, no, it's you a, won, you won me venture over. It's
1: a venture-backed yes. startup.
2: Yeah. And we get into it.
0: In the yeah. Interviews. No, you won me over as like. Yeah, it's hardware. It's hardware. I got it now. But anyway, so we talked we talked to Lauren uh in the wake of Jewel's uh the decision by the FDA to yank Jewel off the shelves, which now apparently has been stayed. And so when we recorded that interview, Jewel I believe was not uh like it had just been struck down by the FDA, but since then there's been an injunction. So keep that in mind as you listen to her interview. Is that is that fair? That's a good update on where things are with Jewel and the FDA.
2: Yeah. I'm glad we get a moment of just the three of us hanging out. I I feel like we always have guests on. And then...
1: And they're so intrusive. They have their own opinions. I know. They (laughs) always (laughs) want to talk.
2: Gary, I I did have... I love Gary as a guest uh, talking about uh, artificial intelligence. But uh, he he, uh, was a man after my own heart in that he had a lot of takes and he wanted to make sure he... uh, distributed to the world he was like this, this is there's a random sidebar that i want to like. i'm like this is my show to have random sidebars that i want to unload on people Go he's my. like
1: i'm gonna serve up a couple takes on Scotus. <laughs> i've got some thoughts on global warming
2: <laughs> exactly yeah. everything that i'm too lazy to write up for a newsletter i i intend to get on the air here so at least i'm like on the record somewhere but well then, this is all our guests is- sort of muddy it up
0: this is the alternative to Twitter. This is what I always tell myself. It's like I had this take. There is no upside for me tweeting it out. But if I can do it here, uh, maybe I no won't one get will canceled. hear it, so no one will right. get
1: mad at you, and there's no viral mechanisms. Right. To, uh, if a tweet yeah. is uttered in the forest and nobody
0: <laughs> right, so few people get canceled for podcast episodes in comparison to tweets. That's that's Aww, my calculus. there's
1: time yet. <laughs> yeah.
0: Eric, uh, give us the rundown on Collision. Why don't you even explain what Collision is? I I don't know if I did the best job, but what what is this conference in Toronto?
1: (laughs) Okay, so not only is this a conference in Toronto, it was once a conference in Spain in the year of our Lord, 2016. Isn't that when you were were at Collision Mm -hmm. then? So Collision is this like huge, huge, huge tech conference. It is so huge that you actually feel like you are in a cattle call it doesn't make any sense you don't i don't i hate it so much eric's gonna give us a real definition but i just know that at collision in 2016 tom was there the night in collision Donald or from- web
0: summit it was web summit
1: oh, it yeah was but web it's, summit. it's okay. owned by
0: the same company
2: yeah they're they're the same web summit's a huge one in lisbon which is more yes. than 100,000 people collision's big it's thirty-five thousand. collision is a
0: smaller one at thirty-five they
2: they're both organized by Patty cosgrave it's a bunch of irish people you know if you hear anybody with an irish accent you're like are you you're in charge, in charge of this? Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, it's
2: that's the only the thing
1: the Irish are in charge
2: of. Collisions in Toronto, Web Summits in Lisbon. I think both cities pay them a bunch of money. I think Lisbon pays them like $11 million a year or something. It is, the most, insane,
0: it is um, the most insane government handout I've ever seen in my life. We had regular dinners in like 16th century castles.
2: Yeah, I, I moderated two panels on sort of the venture capital stage, which is smaller, more intimate about sort of the, you know, venture world crumbling, and one with uh, Hamon at General Catalyst, who I'd profiled. Then I did a main stage interview, which is huge. Sim- similar sort of is the bubble bursting themes. I, my main take, honestly, is that there, the conference, I loved it. The conference is really good at giving the elites a totally different conference than everybody else. Like, If you're a speaker, you get a badge that allows you into the forum where you know only the speakers go and they serve you lunch and dinner and breakfast and there's coffee and you can like never have to go in with the riffraff uh there's a similar one for media that's like much worse so i just hung out in the forum all day and then yeah they they invite speakers to drinks it so i i feel bad almost even admitting it but it is a very like i mean you can see the the logic to it which is uh, you get the speakers to go because they're going to have this sort of more intimate conference experience. And then you get everyone else to go because they're going to be able to hear from the speakers uh, that they want to. So there, there is a certain logic, but it is sort of, yeah, My my experience was great because it was, sort of the rarefied uh, version of the conference. You think it's
0: the rarefied. I'm sure there's a version of it that's even a higher level above you that you're not invited to. Well, you see that, I'm, that's the I'm real is, Q-Anon it, this shit. is
1: like C, um, what is it CES in Vegas It's just so similar, right? You have this huge conference with far too many people coming together to basically look at an ex- exhibition hall and go hear speakers. And then there's the, presenters area their experience and then there are the people who go to ces and never attend anything they right. just go to private dinner
0: right they go to rupert Murdoch's
2: suite <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: exactly
0: yeah
2: well they're yeah they have an event afterwards called founders which is sort of a small mm-hmm. scale I, I think i could have gotten into that
0: i mean i've been to founders we will do an episode about founders in which i will bring other people that at founders with me in 2016 because <laughs> it's a real it's a real experience it's crazy
2: but i did i i got to go to a dinner um the, the beauty of being a one-man show is that I'm like the the top person in my my media organization. So I, yeah, I was at a dinner with the uh, what the uh, I guess editor-in-chief of The Washington Post, like president of ABC News, executive producer of sixty Minutes. Uh, John Kelly from Puck. Peter Kafka was there. So that was a cool sort of media who's who experience the editor of refinery uh, twenty nine was sitting across from me at
1: the media. I'm so curious. so the Obviously, venture backed media is struggling. So, was there conversation about that? Were people talking about what was going on with Vice? I mean, Refinery 29 had its own issues. What's going They're on with part BuzzFeed. of BuzzFeed? Exactly. Yeah. What's going on at BuzzFeed and the sort of disaster that that became? Or did the dinner completely, do you guys just ignore? <laughs> ignore this all together and have fun no i
2: mean we were talking about media
0: was it off the record can you uh w- what did uh who's the, who by the way is the editor-in-chief of the washington post isn't it sally busby i
2: was it, 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 is, it is sally busby
1: yes. yeah
0: i wasn't seated near her she was definitely there. <laughs> i mean a lot a of, lot of questions for busby i did days.
2: hear someone i i don't know if it was off the record or not so i'm gonna be someone definitely did was like i'm you know, you've really handled this like uh Twitter thing very well. You know, just like class. someone said like that? Uh, yeah, I'm sure like she doesn't want it to even be brought up, but like it, it this was,
1: Twitter <laughs> thing being the insane implosion that happened around two reporters. But, but it's it was, everything
2: you imagine with like top people sort of backslapping each other, where they probably have only like consumed like a tenth of what's going you know, they're just like it's oh uh, my like, god. There's there's definitely some of it where it feels like I don't know senior people in media are i didn't talk to her at all so i'm not talking about her but uh they're not as in the weeds the senior people in media necessarily is all the reporters and uh you can, you can sort of right, feel you not make
1: much 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 more money than a reporter for doing more work that's <laughs> preposterous
0: <laughs> if someone uh, is complimenting busby i can say this because i don't work there but someone is complimenting busby for handling the twitter thing well that's kind of the point of the dinner where maybe i get up and go and
1: well i think with these Twitter things is to handle them well is literally to try to pretend they didn't happen. Because so I talked to somebody who was thinking about, should I go, you know, I'm thinking, should I go to the Washington Post or should I go to the New York Times? The Post just had this issue. And I said, but do you remember this thing that happened at the New York Times that eventuated in the firing of the head of our op-ed section? He literally couldn't remember it. It happened two years ago. So I mean, I think think these things go away. James Bennett. And are forgotten as quickly as they like... Uh, impl- explode yes. it's only the sickos except, like except journalists that remember the right. right
0: right yeah that is them so the so the funny thing about asking you this question eric is like what everyone would want to say coming out of a conference is like oh what was the temperature what was the sentiment but either you weren't really in like the you know the riffraff you were just with the elites uh, right. which maybe gives you like the high level understanding of what's going on
2: the mood i mean all the panels were like is the world ending but then the you know the panelists themselves backstage want to like you know, wanna, like like, you know stay a, stay upbeat. So I, I think, yeah, definitely sort of the market turning. I mean, ever, that's everybody. Everybody's talking about that, and and crypto taking a nosedive. I mean, that was definitely a big conversation piece. You know, Wesley Chan was there. He just started a new fund. So I mean.
0: Even though the world's ending, people are clearly willing to like start start new things. I mean,
2: no, those things probably took a long time to get going. Well, it takes
0: a long time for the world to end. I think that's what people forget. You know, like even if you agree that we're on like an inexorable march towards some sort of dissolution, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, like, right. these things, right. f- funds will still be raised. This capital will still be deployed.
2: Ryan Peterson of Flexport was definitely the best speaker. I mean, he's just good at being. He has he's such great. a good story in that he was doing logistics. So some of it, it's like, okay, I've heard this so many times now. But he is good at, he. he's like, oh, we think we're going to do $5 billion in revenue. You know, he's just, he drops in very specific stuff. He was also really self-flagellating when it came to hiring Dave Clark from Amazon. You know, he's like, uh, Ryan, Ryan's just like, you know, I was looking at everything I know how to do and everything he knows how to do. And he's better at me than all of it. So I was like, oh, I guess you should be CEO. But but then he couldn't help using the euphemism of "I'm stepping up to be executive chairman." You know, like people love to get promoted out of the CEO job. But um,
0: but overall, (laughs) he he was very good. I think
2: he he spoke.
1: I I was promoted out of the top job. I I was. (laughs) That's good.
0: Anyway, uh, Ryan is great. That we should have him on the show. Um, I I feel like there's always uh, it's just logistics, a lot going on there. Feel like you're you're kind of at the nexus of a lot of points in the international capitalistic market.
1: I I just find it so shocking that people still want to go to things like collision. Like this pandemic was supposed to make some of the worst things go away, and conferences are like back. I mean, the fact that Davos just happened. I have always hated conferences, though, so this is my bias. But I did think to myself, maybe people will want to do something else with their time. I was wrong. I was so wrong. Conferences are back.
2: It's an efficient way to see a lot of people that you would like to talk to. I definitely feel like I made a bunch of new sources. I did a hysterical small rant round table. It was like me and like four other people explaining them how to build lifelong relationships with the media where like i I feel like if that if that were recorded, I really gave all my my media dark arts to four random people that I'd never met. But, uh, <laughs> I, I think this just funny. like all, all the answers to Eric's strategy on reporting were revealed to the random four people who showed up at a round table for an hour where I just monologued about, you know, media.
0: You should have charged for that. Are you still collecting <laughs> business cards at conferences? That, that was your thing for a while. No,
2: I don't bring mine. I, but, but now I, I just ask for people's number right,
0: right there. It's very personal.
2: It is funny at a conference. It's the, It's the adult, it's the last adult place you can go to have camp friends. You know, you have those people that you like, Meet up with early, and then you're like, "Oh, we should hang. We'll hang out at all all the different events together."
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah. They were my South by Southwest buddy. Right. I think the reason conferences persist is that there's just enough to make like to appeal to the weaknesses and narcissisms of all the different Mm. types of person that goes to a conference Mm. that no one's really willing to call it out for the uselessness that every other part of it is. You know,
1: right? Because nobody. I mean, the panels are sort of beside the point. I'm not really sure what I've ever heard. But execs like to
0: be asked to speak on the panel. They're like, "I get a." be on a stage
1: right because i have like, a microphone enough to spell a platitude on cnbc i need to say the same thing that doesn't say anything to an even smaller group of people
2: right i find it truly insane though the people who just fly in just for their panel i'm like th- nobody love is it. consuming this like what What's the point? Because it's live
0: audiences, you know, you get to hear, you get to see on their faces the recognition when they intake your brilliance. Whereas when you're doing it on CNBC, you're talking into a piece of glass.
1: So are executives like just frustrated former theater kids?
0: (laughs) They talk down to the theater kids. Like they definitely bullied them, but they also understood the core truth of what the theater kids wanted, which was, you know, they want to be on stage. They want to show, they need to fill that hole in their, in their heart and their, and their soul.
1: So after you came out of collision, what are the what are the parts of the venture backed world that just don't really make sense anymore? We're not going to see as much of. You know, I think I feel like when obviously I don't cover tech anymore, but when I did, it was like hardware was the future and like direct to consumer.
2: Let's talk some substance. I think you know a lot of people are turning on crypto that wouldn't have been willing to before. Yeah, because they're I, poor now. <laughs> right. Well, you know, there are people who are like <laughs> who are skeptical, dipping their toes in it. Who thought who you know who now are seem more skeptical. Chama on All In was talking about a uh, Chris Dixon and sort of the you know venture firms basically you know selling tokens along the way and getting rich quick and like that being sort of a big area, a uh, big question mark. So that's super interesting. It was hysterical to see Chamah shitting on someone else when. Of course, his SPAC performance has been totally underscrutinized. It was like a bullet point in my newsletter, but definitely on a permanent to-do list of hold Shamath accountable for taking a bunch of companies public that have seen their stocks tanked. And the beauty, of course, of being a sponsor is you get a cut of the value of the company. And it's only if you had to do the private round at a high valuation that you really got screwed. And I think in most cases, he avoided doing that. He got other people to hold the bag. So. I mean, the death of SPACs is ongoing. The death of, not death, but the sort of sinking values of crypto. I mean, Bird is down to like 160 million. I mean, I just reported that even Sequoia, you know, has held on to DoorDash and Unity, two of their biggest bets. Those are down
0: significantly. BuzzFeed is a SPAC that's obviously eating shit.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. it'll be funny. I'm interested to see which of these high-profile SPACs, like, eats it first. Like... if Buzzfeed is like the, I don't know, one of the iconic companies of this downturn, that would be really lame for media.
0: But no, I think I think you're onto something, Eric. I, I really do think that Shamath is going to be held accountable and sort of be seen as like one of the great, you know, almost you could some will say, I would not say this, but some could say kind of charlatans of the SPAC era. Um, and I think you'll see a real change there. Well, somebody has to do the math. Like
2: right. how much did he make and how much did other people lose? And yeah. I mean,
0: yeah the math there?
1: So I think what's interesting is that tech is the most visible part of the downturn because the stocks, it's a lot of public market companies and they were doing so, so well. So it feels like an early indicator, but I think that we live in a world, especially because of the the combination of very low interest rates and a lot of money. When I say a lot of money, I mean, a lot of money being taken out of things like the stock market and put into the hands of private equity the downturn that happens in other sectors might not be as visible this early on, but we could see later and have real impact later. It's almost like, it, it, for our purposes, tech stocks are the canary in the coal mine of something bigger happened. Right. And the world is so interconnected and at the very sort of like riskiest part of the, of the market. So everything from like public companies out to private equity and venture capital that it's hard for me to believe that this that, that this stops with tech stocks and sort of the tech industry. Right. And then I guess like the last thing is that the first the first like would like really clarion call about a housing bubble and the residential mortgage backed security risk that started happening was probably in 20, 2005. <laughs> so, and it took until September of 2008 for the collapse i know these things
2: are so slow being in the because I mean, it's, it's
1: about faith and it's about right. um trust and so people will fool themselves for a really long time until they suddenly wake up and say we can't do it anymore and then they all leave it and once. then
2: the books don't even come until after that and that's when yeah. everybody concludes what actually happened so Absolutely. it is this amazing thing where <laughs> the reporters early on are like oh this is looking bad it's starting to happen and then, and then the big like stories come you know and then the final actions come and then the books come you're like you know, I mean, and the it's movies just, are even later. Right, exactly. Find out it's about it's anyway. just like the movies about the founders came exactly as we've been processing on this podcast. So long after, you know, years after. And so, yeah, right. I mean, the big short came years after the last founder. So I think what's changed is we have this Twitter world where people, not just reporters, but everybody is consuming the narratives very quickly. You get the information right away. But then the sort of entertainment info industrial complex still takes a while
0: um, to What I kind of wonder about is like with the housing bubble and the collapse, there was all of this interconnectedness and, and over leveraged companies, over leveraged assets. And I don't really see the same. I'm trying to find like, what is the over leveraged or, or like, what is the leverage here with tech?
1: It was the, the issue was that the banks were amongst the group of over leveraged lenders and over leveraged actors and the banks also had to do a lot of other functions for the economy, keeping yeah. money flowing all around the world and like keep keeping, keeping our savings accounts open. I mean, like there was, so it, part of the issue was that such a central part of the economy was in such big trouble. Insurers and banks because <laughs> of Dodd-Frank, I mean, Jesus Christ, I can't even believe I'm saying this. It, it's <laughs> nothing else that, horrible piece of legislation, if nothing else. What it did is it did force big financial institutions to hold cash on hand to offset risky assets. Like if if, even if that's all it actually accomplished, that's good because it means it's less likely that a central player in the economy could go down in flames. But so Tom, you're right. What if it is just a lot of hedge funds that start imploding? It's hard for me to argue that even a very large hedge fund is so interconnected and so important to the world that it's collapse will really, really hurt Main Street and the way that the housing collapse and attendant securitized finance collapse
0: hurt people. Yeah. Like the most that I could see here is the contagion sort of spreading to quote unquote, non-tech stocks, because from my perspective, what's really happening here is just a revaluation of these companies. A lot of them have Businesses that are more or less the same. You haven't seen a huge downturn in revenue quarterly. That may happen. But what's happened is, you know, investors basically said, oh, maybe they're not worth a hundred X multiples on their revenue. Maybe they're only worth two or three X or 10X or something. And over the last couple of years, I just saw this covering media. There were a lot of companies that were looking very Longingly at these insane multiples that tech companies had, and they're like, "Well, how can we pitch ourselves in in a tech like way, in a growth like way?" So it seems like, "So we can get the." And that's what Disney did, right? They basically said, "Oh, actually, we're a streaming company." And they one day just got valued at like, you know, I can't remember the the multiple difference, but you know, significantly more than they were just because they called themselves a streaming company. And they're down along with you know the rest of the market.
2: Right. I mean, valuation reset has
0: been sort of a key key piece of this.
2: I wanted yeah. I, I forgot a funny thing I had to tell you. I was looking up a finally while you guys were uh, figuring out the market. <laughs> in, in classic fashion, you know, you know, I, was in, I, I went early for like the Venture Day collision, and you know there was a guy, you know, in shorts, right, Which, of course I think was the richest guy there. He, uh, he's one of the top people, if not the top people, at Multicoin. Have you even heard of this one? Have no. either of you heard of this fund? No. I love the name, though. Multicoin. According to their last filing, which I pulled up while we were on this call, this was at the end end of uh, last year, I think. So so they've certainly sunk significantly from this. But they had $8.9 billion in assets under management. You've never even heard of them. I mean, that's how big some of these crypto funds have gotten. This guy's standing around shorts. I think there's seventeen people that work there, so this guy got it they're huge in Solana and they're huge in helium and I mean, it seemed like they were just holding holding on tight you know it's like we we don't sell that' sort of that was the attitude yeah it was it was amazing oh, you should
0: follow up with that guy definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he may he may lose his shorts with the last few minutes uh before we cut to our interview with Lauren. do you want to quickly talk about uh the overturn of Roe v. Wade and uh, all the tech companies that put out statements saying that they will support their employees crossing state lines. Well,
2: Duolingo did a good job,
0: right? Didn't they say um, he was threatening Pennsylvania? I don't know. Katie, Katie do you have?
3: I, I think that
1: there were tech companies. There were also like larger companies like exporting Sporting Goods. Um, I think JP Morgan said we will pay if our employees need to their right. lines was to obtain set. an abortion yeah. yeah and and Susan Mujiki basically came out and said like I understand I run a company and I understand there are a lot of different opinions on this issue in the company but my personal opinion is this is terrible So I think the two questions beyond like the making of the statements which being realistic, people inside those companies are going to have a variety of opinions on they're not going to agree is for corporate America, one do states pass state legislation where, doing something like providing that kind of funding and transport violates law. Not that the person moved from one state to another and crossed a border, which I think Kavanaugh in his separate decision says he does not think should, you know, he, that you can't go after people just for leaving their state to obtain an abortion, but can a company be attacked for aiding and abetting an illegal act? So I think that's like a big gray area that'll have to be worked out. And the other thing is, are will companies be eager to headquarter in states where abortion is just straight up illegal or highly restricted. So that throws Texas, which has been the recipient of so much business, so many people setting up companies there and so much investment, what happens to Texas, what happens to Florida and then what happened, you know, so there, there are definitely bigger questions beyond like the making of the statement, which of course would make sense that that happens in the moment. But it, you, we're going to have to see those bigger questions worked out and worked out pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. No, I completely agree. I, I'm actually more interested in people reckoning with that, you know, that reality of of so much energy and effort. I mean, basically boosterism for Texas and Florida by prominent people in the tech community uh, now having to deal with the fact that yeah, these states are not politically aligned with what you claim to stand for, and what are you going to do? I mean, you can shit all over California for its anti business proposals and statutes and culture but politically you're far more aligned with the people than you are in those other states and what are you going to do and
2: i I do there will be another i think beat to the story in that you know a lot of the actual humans doing the work for these big tech companies are employed by outside contractors and they rarely get the benefit of uh tech protections Mm -hmm. and so they're they're also you know I mean, yeah. what the poor people are more affected by, by these abortion rules. Obviously, they're not making the high salaries. And I think in a lot of critiques, I, the, the outside contractor issue has sort of been met with I, shrugs, is maybe too strong, but I feel like it hasn't really hit these companies. But I do think on an issue like abortion, where people, you know, really want everyone to have access. I I would not be surprised if companies like Google and Facebook got a lot more pressure to make sure their contractors could get out too or not to have contractors in these in these states
0: and then you know. Yeah. And we talked about that in, in the Kiki Friedman episode, that it's it's one thing to kind of make statements in favor of what your employees want. But when you do start crossing into a world where, yeah, these contractors that you have are not eligible for the same rights. And, you know, if they want to be, they choose to be unionized, that is directly in contradiction to your business interests. And they have no interest in uh, these companies in, in furthering that at all. And so they're going to walk very gingerly on this line, even though, you know, politically speaking, you know, they're happy to make statements, you know, in in support of um, abortion rights of their employees, you know, freedom to get them.
2: It's terrible. I can say that hard, hard not to be like a legal realist after this, that it's just an exercise of power and not sort of argument or coherency. I don't know. Very, very disillusioning, always hard. uh, I don't know when when these national stories uh, sort of swamp uh, what's going on in tech land it can be a little bit
0: like ugh. well i think it's actually just a very clear reminder
1: <laughs> eric's like when 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 i gotta think about something other than venture capital this is not. <laughs> right well it's sort of the
2: opposite it's like how can you expect me to think about venture capital on the days where i i feel a little silly sometimes you know yep. publishing thing and then <laughs> my I also cloud feel, is so much lesser in
0: these national right, stories and i also feel
2: about, d- i don't know i don't sometimes it's good you know you cover tech you repurpose it you know you could talk about the contractor thing but it, it can be a little ridiculous, every tech reporter just trying to recontextualize their beat into the national political issue of import. And sometimes it's like, you're not really the heart of the story. You just happened to cover this other thing. I don't know. It's, yeah, a, you know, it's just an awkward dance for. It, I also think works. it's just a good
0: reminder for tech reporters of what power really is. And where power really resides in this country, and it's certainly still business Article has Article
1: One, Two, and Three with no Catholics no <laughs> on the Supreme okay. Court. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you know what I mean. Like the power
0: resides in the Vatican.
1: <laughs> it's like we think about like the Chamber of Commerce, or we think about big companies being able to lobby, or Mark Zuckerberg having private dinners with Trump. But really, it's about you know, it's it's still about the the, the three branches and. Our state legislatures. That dang constitution. Oh, well, we're going to get rid of that soon enough. On one
2: level, I'm like, oh, I guess I do believe in, like, uh, I was thinking, oh, would I support Jeff Bezos for president? I, I think I would support Jeff so Bezos for I was, president. I
1: just had a meeting with somebody who is an executive, and he was so interesting. He was explaining why he doesn't think that executives actually make good um, political leaders. He's right. like, because as CEO, your job is to figure out what works, quote unquote. And then do it over and over and over again with only enough deviation to keep up with the changes that are buffeting your business. But at the end of the day, you are you have one goal truly, or if you have multiple business line, each line has a goal, but they're all rowing in the same direction. And it's like, if you are the mayor or you are the governor or you're the president, you have competing constituents. Not everybody is rowing in the same direction. You are not supposed to do the same thing over and over and over again because you will fail. And there is no measure of success like PL. And he's like, and so people come in wanting to think it's actually very simple. And then they realize, unfortunately, that it's much harder. I thought that was yeah. a, And that was from somebody who is a CEO. Katie, like, no, okay.
2: you need to go back and read Amazon Unbound, Brad's book on. Bezo- I mean it really? I, lo- I, mean, I sincerely- love that book. My
1: favorite part of that book is when Bezos is like, these employees are not working hard or they're taking a lot of time off because their knees hurt because I'm making them pack the boxes on the floor. So I'm going to get them knee pads. And I thought, there you go.
2: That's- Practical, exactly. But That's- I mean, that- Bezos comes off as someone who's good at like, okay, we hear all the fires burning. I'm going to push you on this, push you on that. You know, I don't know. It's it- all, he- it's all fires
1: burning around a single goal, making money for the company. It's not... like look at sure this is their fight because keep in mind that when roe versus white happened, there was a significant portion of the country that was very happy and felt that a goal had been realized so you're managing just on one issue completely competing constituencies because when you're president even if you're a democrat or republican it's still all the people
2: i this i I can see your argument in abstract but then if i actually had to compare the strengths and weaknesses of the various top democratic contenders or the current president, I'd say, uh, I I don't know if these people, you know, I mean, what's his name? Uh, transportation, uh, Pete, Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Mm. like that guy's an ex consultant. So he's not even a good ex business minded. At least Bezos has done the thing. I mean, no one's going to elect Bezos obviously. So it's sort of, it's a moot point, but I was just as a thought exercise, if I could actually, like, say, who, who would I really want? Like, if I could install anybody, that's the closest I come.
1: Bezos. I think Tim, I you know what? I go Tim, Tim Co- Cook. I go Tim Cook. Because at least he's had to negotiate with leaders around the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's done, You're right. He's done more of the foreign policy, and, and he actually good, manages like right. huge workforces. You'd be good at running a <laughs> empire. You know, it's sort of like you're the you <laughs> have, there's some the cooperation, decision. but you are the dominant force in the ecosystem, and you have to throw your weight around. So yes, Apple is closest in the business world to the American foreign policy. Uh, sort of, I, I see that. <laughs> I would absolutely
0: not want Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, <laughs> uh, Zuck forced himself to learn mandarin so he could connect with the chinese market that never wanted facebook in the first place whereas tim actually operates in china and probably doesn't speak a word of <laughs> mandarin so w- w- one is power the other one is uh you know goals anyway on that front we should probably kick it on over to our interview with uh, lauren edder of bloomberg and our fascinating discussion about the state present and future of jewel
2: and Jule's already uh already fought the banning i think temporarily so uh this is a
0: story that's going to keep turning, and
2: she is the expert. So it was keep a great that conversation. Mind. Also
0: keep in mind that as Eric and I were doing that interview, both of us were like, man, that actually sounds great. Like smoking a jewel. Like I <laughs> could like, go oh, for yeah, that right yeah. now.
2: I need more vices. That's whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I, could take a
0: long, I could take a long drag on a mango jewel pod right now.
2: We've got Lauren Edder from Bloomberg, who I've, Interviewed once before about her book, uh, The Devil's Playbook on Jewel, and now Jewel is back in the news. I, I was sort of I was shocked to find out that the FDA is thinking about or intends uh, to take them off the shelves. Right? What what's were, was were you surprised by this, or did you saw, saw this one coming? I uh, definitely
3: did not see this one coming. In fact, I was very surprised, and I've been asked several times over the past year what do you think the FDA is going to do? And I really would have put money on the FDA keeping Jewel on the market. And we can talk about the reasons why. But I was very surprised by the decision.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, it's like as a layman, not as like a scholar of the FDA or something. It feels like very deserved in that this was a company that, you know, as you can tell from your book, sort of flouted the rules, like marketed aggressively, but, but can you really be punished for that sort of i don't know when when their product today seems like in line with other e-cigarettes or i don't know what 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 if is this about i guess is this about past acts or is this about sort of the status quo at juul today? yeah it's really
3: interesting i mean going going into it you know i would have thought that the fda would have used the youth usage crisis as a way to sort of punish juul or to seek retribution or to hold their feet to the fire but it turns out that in the decision by the FDA, they didn't even mention. I mean, in the they sort of mentioned the youth issue, but that was not the reasoning that the FDA gave for pulling Juul off the market. The FDA essentially said that Juul's application that for having their product in the market did not provide enough evidence, and in fact, sometimes provided conflicting data on some key health issues, including something called genotoxicity, whether or not the product could affect cellular change in the body and potentially lead to cancer. And they mentioned that they provided insufficient and conflicting data on the toxic- toxicology of the product. So inside of jewel, hmm. inside of a jewel pod, the little heating element that is essentially used to heat up the vape, to heat up the liquid and turn it into a vapor is made out of chromium and nickel. And there's studies out there that indicate that when you inhale the jewel vapor, you're also inhaling some level of heavy metals. So the FDA didn't specifically point to that. They just said that they provided insufficient data on the genotoxicity issue and on this potentially uh, leaching issue related to the pod. Hmm. So to me, it was really interesting because it wasn't even, they didn't even conclude that the data showed that there was a problem. And the FDA, in fact, said, we don't believe that there's an immediate harm associated with using this product. We just believe, or we conclude, that the that the company didn't provide enough data or conflicting data. So to me, which seems like a, a technicality with their application. So it's it's a really interesting finding by the FDA they didn't find that, you know, this is a company that created a new generation of kid, teen nicotine addicts, and therefore we're punishing you. Hmm. So it is actually very surprising and interesting decision by the, by the FDA. And obviously, Juul has already filed a motion in court to try to uh, seek a stay to keep their products on the market. And so they're not going to go down easy. There's going to be a legal fight. The FDA could get sued. So it's definitely, you know, does not bode well for Juul, but it also, we still have some uh, legal maneuvering ahead of us.
0: It, it seems like the story is, you know, this is like the latest step in this long, slow descent uh, of this company from its height, uh, maybe four or five years ago to now. Uh, whereas once, you know, they were this hugely successful e-cigarette business that I just, as I was following its story, just as a tech reporter uh, living in San Francisco, where, you know, there was a whole controversy about them even being headquartered in the city, uh, you know, it went from, may, you know, the, the jewel pods themselves being banned, uh, flavored jewel pods being banned, uh, to, uh, just they're generally, oh, there was concern around at the beginning of COVID that people First that,
2: they came for our mango jewel pods and now they're right. taking, that's, that's sort of the Reddit. Yeah,
0: it's, it's 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 been so interesting to watch its paths from being, you know, what was maybe arguably one of the hottest quote unquote tech companies we can get into whether, you know, this is tech or, or like what the tech connection is here to something that it seems like nobody wants any part of. And the FDA is using essentially technicalities to to kill this thing. Uh, It's quite an incredible story over not that long a period of time.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, certainly um, a rise, a very stunning rise and fall. Remember, this is a company that was valued at $38 billion at its peak. At one point, it was bigger than the valuation of SpaceX. I mean, it was a huge, it was a unicorn, this kind of huge success story. Investors piling in from Tiger Global to Fidelity you know I mean the growth the growth potential and prospect of jewel on its ascent was really something that was stunning and it was it was like you couldn't have a better product in terms of customers. Your customer becomes highly addicted to your product and will buy it first before food and anything else like so th- they 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 described this them as uh sticky customers so yeah <laughs> it was a it was a very It was a very valuable... (laughs) Sticky,
2: sticky, you get that... Right, yeah, that between your finger. Yeah, Yeah, we've said on the
0: show before that that addiction (laughs) is the greatest business model of all time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tom and I have been arguing. You see... I mean, it sort of fits into the Theranos ambiguity here, but do you see Jewel as a tech company or I forget? Is this a tech
0: story, Lauren?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a tech story. You know, this is this is a company that innovated on an old product and innovated on a product and brought to bear technology, if you want to call it that. I mean, it, you know, is a little essentially a little flash drive like that's literally what they modeled their product after was a flash drive. So, you know, it it is one of those companies that kind of falls in between the cracks. Is it a tech company? Is it a a cigarette company? Is it a, a health company? Because there are all really there are all those blurred lines and there are people who believe that this is a product that is for the benefit of the public health because it can potentially theoretically help smokers get off of their uh, their addictive smoking habit, which we know to be very deadly. So it is it is an interesting company. That's for sure. It blurs lines. I think it's a tobacco company. At the end of the day, you can't really ignore the fact that they are selling nicotine, plain and simple. That is what they're selling. And to me, that fits into the tobacco category. But yeah, it has a tech element. You got the you got the Silicon Valley kind of element to it. You have the Stanford creators. So yeah, I don't know. I I do think it's kind of falls in between the lines.
0: Yeah. 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 I know. And it's funny, as you're going through the argument, I mean the Theranos connection, not you know, as in this was an out and out scam, but the fact that it was really pulling from the playbook that so many tech companies want, like Stanford, like raising from venture capital, like pitching it as a hardware, you know, like like a hardware type product, whether or not it is, you know, in its essence, a tech company or, or not.
2: The company, Tom, was also spending a lot of energy on innovating right. on this yeah. device and the flavors. And it's easy to laugh at that from the outside, but there was a lot of like, That was a big part of the company. Well,
3: and I want to point out that this was a highly successful innovation. The cigarette hadn't been innovated in over a century, literally still rolling plant matter in paper and setting it on fire. That had not been changed. So they actually did bring to bear a very, a genius innovation, part of which came from the tobacco industry's own playbook from their secret files and how's you
2: document in your book
3: right and they um they did it brilliantly their product really delivered what smokers were looking for which was that that throat hit that very quick spurt of nicotine that goes to your brain we're all
2: going to start you're smoking you're making that you sound great, it sound great Lauren. i got to tell you <laughs>
3: yeah i mean i could go for a that's tool the right thing. Now. that's the crazy that's the crazy <laughs> thing about it their product was highly successful it was in a arguably too successful they put too much nicotine in it and then they didn't disclose the risks they didn't tell people that oh there's actually a shitload of nicotine in there so much that you use it once and you're going to get hooked
2: right Th- now there are lots of copycats right i mean that's that's relevant both for jewel's business but also this sort of crackdown it's interesting they're going after jewel but not the copycats is that again one theory would be they're mad at jewel another would be jewel's just the furthest along So that, you know, there's more, there's more history here. So the FDA is ready to go after them or that Juul's product is distinct in some way from the follow on competitors. I mean, I know this is just plain out, but do you have a theory of sort of which of those buckets this FDA action sort of fits into? I mean,
3: I think there would have to be a pretty big conspiracy against Juul inside the FDA that I don't know (laughs) if that actually took place. You know, you have to take them at the word that they evaluated their application And they found that their application was deficient, and that's why they denied the application. It is hard to imagine that there were no political kind of aspects to this. And it's also impossible to ignore the harm that Jewel inflicted on the American public. And so, yeah, did that color the FDA's decision? It's not supposed to. This is supposed to be purely a scientific review. So you got to, I, I at least, Take the FDA at the word that they did this. Their, their word that they did a scientific review and arrived at this, at this uh, decision. So, so yeah. I mean, in terms of the copycats, it's a really interesting point and in question. I mean, the market is being flooded with brand new nicotine products all the time, and some of them fly under the radar. They're not spending 150 million dollars to uh, ask the FDA for approval to sell their product. They're just this product gets on the market. They end up in vape shops. People are selling it. Then there's a black market. You can get it on the black market. And remember, a lot of these products are really built on the back of Jewel's innovation, which is right. very stinging for Jewel because some of them are literal copycats, black market, but others actually just derive some of the innovation from Jewel. For example, the, the uh, nicotine salts, that was Juul's kind of discovery that really hmm. made their product pop. Now there are a million products that have nicotine salts in them. Some of the products even look like Juul. So, you know, it it is a little in terms of like is this going to solve a problem like t- will taking Juul off the market solve some bigger problem about youth nicotine addiction? It's just the fact is that there are so many products that are currently on the market that came after Juul and that are in fact very similar to Juul and the FDA doesn't really have the enforcement resources to go to all these vape shops to see what's being sold. You know, they are they actually are a little bit um stretched in terms of the enforcement resources that they have. So yeah, it's a huge loss for Jewel. They're gonna fight it, obviously. But I will say it's a huge win for all of these other companies and all of the, and the two companies that are so Jewel's number one, right? In the market. Yeah. Number two is Reynolds, Views, number three is Enjoy. Both of those products receive their PMTA authorization.
0: It's funny, by the way, Lauren, that, that you bring up Reynolds as one of the winners here. I, I've been bugging Eric and almost everyone else about this recently, but I'm, I'm rereading Barbarians at the Gate. And there's a hilarious passage or section where they talk about their attempts to develop, you know, 30 years ago, the smokeless cigarette Which was a disaster back then, Uh, you know.
3: Right, it tasted like shit, he said, right? Right, yeah. There's a (laughs) hilarious scene where the
0: CEO of RJR Nabisco is like making all of his wealthy friends try, you know, an early prototype of the smokeless cigarette. And they're all like, dude, this is disgusting you cannot use that and that would kind of ends up precipitating the, you know the whole drama in the story because they can't innovate at all but it is funny to see mm-hmm. you know a, a cigarette company not able to do it a tech company does it 30 years later now it's getting fucked by the regulatory you know structure and big tobacco whatever you want to call Reynolds these days somehow emerges victorious all these years later to kind of leap off the the you know the, the technology and product that was built Um, By another company, so it seems like the establishment. If you want to refer to it as that uh, kind of one in the end here.
3: Yeah. Well. Yeah. And then also the irony layered on top of that is that Altria, of course, formerly known as Philip Morris, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes, had this huge investment in Juul worth 12.8 billion dollars. It's now worth a fraction of that, like 1.6. Sorry, billion now worth about 1.6 billion dollars. They had their own product. And they took their own product off the market to back Jewel. So not only, Ooh, yeah, not only huh. did they have the worst investment, make the worst investment, or one of the worst in American history, business history, but they also lost out on an opportunity to develop their own IP, their own product, and basically bet on the wrong horse.
0: Yeah.
2: Did, did the original, uh, this is what I always want to know, did they get away with it? Did... Did the original sort of Jewel founders, Jewel Money, Tiger, like are they're they're still? So, I mean, they got paid out big by Altria and then had some stake. Or who who's sort of still up big time over this Jewel project and who's who's out of the yeah. money? Things to sort of this coming yeah, off? the Yeah, I mean,
3: that absolutely. If you want to say they got away with it, fine. Absolutely, <laughs> the the founders. You're like your the words. founders of Jewel. <laughs> made out like bandits, the board of directors made out like bandits on that $12.8 billion deal. And basically, you know, they're not at the company anymore, or have a diminished role, not really involved in the day to day affairs, and became billionaires. And then those that were already billionaires, including Nick Pritzker, are, you know, even more billionaire-esque times over. Doubly
0: billionaire. Rolling back the clock a little bit uh, to the era where Juul was on the rise. And I remember at, when I was working at the information at the time, we ran a couple stories about the dithering among venture capitalists about whether or not they could even invest in Juul because it would be it would run afoul of their vice clauses that they couldn't really be investing in a company that was contributing to uh uh, you know, addiction and, well, uh, at least nicotine addiction. What is your sense of how those people might be feeling at this point? I mean, you know, wh- wh- what even, like, was the, the, what was going on among the VC community as Juul was on the rise?
3: So we know that Jewel was brilliant at its marketing. Maybe, you know, obviously their early marketing was, ended up going down in history as being um, maybe their original sin, if you will. But I'm only saying that because too, too good, good too good at marketing. <laughs> but what I will say, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because they were also very good salesmen. Um, these, uh, the two founders of the company really, first of all, they believed in their product. They believed like, why are we still smoking? It's really stupid. It kills people. Why can't we find a healthier, safer way to do it? So they come up with Juul. So they really did believe, and there's actually this very big public health movement that's been gaining steam for the past two decades that argues that if smokers really want to keep smoking because they're, they're addicted to nicotine, that's why they continue smoking. If we just find a way to give them nicotine in a way that doesn't involve combustion, then like that would be great. You could save a lot of lives. You could, you could, you could render the cigarette moot. So they really sold that story. They sold the story of this being not only an innovation, but a, a an innovation that is a, a very promising for public health and the greater good. So that's a story that they shopped around. And I think that really got the attention a lot of a lot of venture capitalists and that made them sort of like set aside this um, kind of like dirty association with big tobacco. And, you know, it doesn't really run afoul of the vice clause because it's actually helping people. So that's been always kind of like the twin kind of thing with Jewel. It's like, it's like the problem is that they, they packaged it as it, as it having this health promise, but then they sold it like a Silicon Valley company sells widgets, like a Silicon Valley company (laughs) sells scooters, you know, bird scooters, or, you know, you, you name whatever product. And they sold it in a way that was very irresponsible. So the initial launching of it and sort of like the get the gathering of uh, the money and finding backers and gaining, earning sympathy of them, like it was kind of all wrapped up in this package. And I don't think that it caused too many people, too many of these investors, a lot of um, heartache, honestly, because ultimately they could say, you know, this is, yeah, sure, it might be a controversial product. But at the end of the day, it's going to help a lot of people
0: if this truly were embraced by tech, you would have seen a lot more people out there right now, you know, railing against the regulatory state for stopping this innovation from, from you know, continuing its march. And instead, there's really not been that much I've seen from the tech community. So it, again, puts it in this weird nether region.
3: I think, you know, a lot of people aren't really excited to get out and defend Jewel. There's certainly a lot of, you know, the people in this pro-vaping mo- movement that ve- feel very strongly about the right to vape and, you know, that have, you know, come out in their defense but you know going forward yeah there's going to be a lot of legal maneuvering if they get a stay that potentially means that they could keep their product on the shelf so remember 90% of jewel's sales are in the United States they have the res of hmm. more than 90% so wiping out that market potentially wipes out jewel they have some foreign markets but they're very tiny so if they don't win or if they don't if they aren't able to push back or if they aren't able to continue selling their product, they're screwed. But yeah, so what does that mean for Juul? Uh, bankruptcy, potentially. Yikes. You know, it's, it's definitely a, a, a potential there. But I don't think Juul is going to give up that easily. They have an arsenal of lawyers. They have a lot of very smart lawyers who have litigated in this space for decades and who are veterans of the tobacco wars and know exactly how the game works. So I wouldn't write them off immediately, but it's definitely going to spend They're going to have to spend a lot of money to keep the product on the shelf. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a cloud that's continuing to hang over the company for for quite some time. So, yeah, we shall see what happens. In the meantime, nicotine isn't going away anytime soon.
0: If I'm if I'm Jewel, my game plan here is just get this tied up in the courts for as long as possible until you have enough millennial judges on the bench Enough like activist millennial vaping judges on there (laughs) who are going to be sympathetic to their cause. And then you've got it. I mean, we've seen. We've seen how this works. The parties get more
2: polarized. We have some all right vapors. That's the, that's the thing that brings the far. That's the, the horseshoe theory is, is vaping together. Yeah, exactly. I They're think long, the long term plan is,
0: is actually a very solid one for them, but they just need to stick it through. Not that I'm advocating for it, but I see. The well,
3: I, I guarantee <laughs> it might it might drag on for that long. So you you may, you may end up being right in the, at the end of the day. I
0: love the headline. Jewel drags on. There you go. <laughs> all right.
2: Thank you very
3: much. You're thanks thanks, for, thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Goodbye, goodbye. Silicon Valley. <Wideocking sesi> goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: goodbye, 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 goodbye. goodbye.